I love the the possibility that when we look at an artwork and we encounter an artwork, that rather than just learning about it, that we might learn from it. That we might, um, as as we ask good questions, as we engage with it historically, as we you know sort of understand it as a thing that we also open ourselves up to the way that the artwork itself might then call us to do something, might call us to offer God praise, might call us to uh, look at our own sin and to confess, might call us into a space of curiosity or lament. We are, again, working from our God-given abundance to actually recognize the ways that we are being shaped and then to reshape in, uh, as, as a form of cultural production. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Dr. Alyssa Yukiko Whitebro is Associate Professor of Art and Art History at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, near Chattanooga. Her new book is Redeeming Vision, a Christian guide to looking at and learning from art. In this episode, Dr. Whitebrook and I talk about embodied vision, loving vision, and transforming vision as well as the importance of paying attention to what you see before making claims about what you think. Uh, Lisa Yukiko Whitebrot, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm excited about uh, your new book, Redeeming Vision. Uh, Help me with the subtitle. It is A Christian Guide to Looking at and Learning from Art. Great. Tell me about what this, this book is about. Let's start there. Yeah, so this book is a field guide for how to look. Um, There are a number of rich uh, theological arguments that are already out there for why Christians should engage the visual arts, but there hasn't yet been a really practical guide to Mm -hmm. equip Christians, to equip the everyday viewer to Mm -hmm. look at art and images in a productive way. And so that's what this book sets out to do. Yeah, it's. I have to say it. It is very practical. You know, Good. here are the you know here are the categories in which to think. Or is mm-hmm. that the? Am I using the right word? Uh, you know, line shape, mm-hmm. color, value. You know, these things that I I kind of I knew all those terms, didn't know what to do with them, and um, it was just just good to see. Here's the whole list. Yeah, well, the yeah, the first three chapters, right, are just sort of introducing you to practices of looking. So here are the vocabulary, the first steps, your helpful questions. And then the remainder of the book explores different categories and genres of art using case studies to to mm-hmm. model the kind of generative looking that mm-hmm. that I'm hoping to equip people with. Yeah. Yeah. So you say early in the book, in the introduction, I think, um, mm-hmm. that faith gives us not so much a fence to tell us what to look at and what not to look at, but rather a path. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I I think that so often Christians read something, you know, like Philippians 4, 8, and they read it as a sort of content warning. So like, I mm-hmm. can't look at things that are not just or not lovely, um, that, that don't have moral excellence in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm really, what I'm struck by is then the friction between that and other examples that we have in scripture where God calls his people to gaze upon something that is unlovely, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I give yeah. the example of the prophet Ezekiel um, being asked, being told by God to do things that are 
are very not aesthetically pleasing <laughs> that make yeah. our stomachs kind of turn over just reading about yeah. them or thinking about the faithful women who observed Jesus's crucifixion. That is not a visually pleasing or morally uplifting sight. Um, and yeah. yet they're called to bear witness to that. So if Philippians 4.8 isn't so much a, a checklist of a, of a content warning, can we understand it instead? Can we understand scripture instead as a guide for how we should look? That this is mm -hmm. more about an orientation of looking rather than uh, just thinking about what subject matter we should or should not look at or what kinds of form we should or should not look at. The, the book is really grounded in a, a belief that as children of God uh, who are are brought into the kingdom that we work from a place of abundance. Mm -hmm. And so rather than just critiquing things that we see or sort of like dissecting them, taking them apart, that instead we can we can actually locate the things that are true, that we can locate uh, the things that are just, and we can see Jesus in unexpected places and then do something with it. So if if the guide for the whole Christian life is love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, then that's a really good guide for how we should also look at art and images. Hmm. You use the verb uh, locate. Uh, mm -hmm. So the we're locating what is true, what is commendable, um, you know, what is of moral excellence or praiseworthy. Mm -hmm. um, could you say just another sentence or two about that verb locate? Sure. I suppose I'm thinking about uh, the story where Jesus is eating a meal with tax collectors and sinners and the religious leaders um, come in and, and they're sort of, they're surprised that he would be in this space. Uh, and the the art historian and theologian Dan Seidel uh, has really impacted me in my thinking about this. He he says, "Why would we, as Christians, um, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't be surprised to see Jesus wherever he is? Um, we don't want to mm -hmm. be like the religious leaders and be like, wait, you're not supposed to be there.'" <laughs> Um, yeah. If if we believe that all truth is God's truth, if we believe that Christ really is preeminent in all things, uh, then there's going to be that that common grace. There's going to be um, glimpses of something that that can still be that that can be turned into something good. That can be made. Uh, that can be used for kingdom work, um, even in places that might surprise us. You know, my, my husband likes to tell people that I study the art you don't like. You know, when we're <laughs> when we're trying to explain to people what I do in graduate school, he would say, "Well, you know, the the part of the museum where you don't like any of it—that's the stuff that Alyssa studies." <laughs> and he's he's not wrong, um, yeah. but that's where I have in in modern and contemporary art. Uh, the the places where I don't initially want to be, I have been consistently surprised and humbled by how the Holy Spirit meets me there. Mm. I, the that language of locating it makes me think about the possibility. You know, the, uh, the word witness. I mean, witness is a kind of seeing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're, this is a book about seeing. Um, and usually, when Christian people talk about witnessing, it's I am telling the world about something that I know about mm -hmm. you know, God or the other world or 
whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also called to witness what's around us, right? Yes. We're, called, we're called to witness the world. And in, in locating, maybe we are bearing witness to other Christian people. Yes. Of what we've seen in the in the in the world or or mm-hmm. in art or whatever. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I mean, I'm I'm very moved by the story of Hagar and mm-hmm. Hagar in the wilderness um naming you are the God who sees me, right? Yeah. You are Elroy, you are the God who sees me. And how God seeing her in her place of distress, um is transformational that that simply God seeing her and saying, I I see you, Hagar. This is my promise that I'm making to you, that that changes everything for her. And she's able to do something that was previously unimaginable to her, that she goes back, right, to mm-hmm. Abraham and Sarah's house because she has been seen, because witness has been born to her. Um, and I I I want that for for us as the church. I want that. Um, particularly, you know, in, in moments when our culture is so heavy and is so full of brokenness, we need to be bearing witness. We need to be giving the dignity of saying, I see what is happening um, to each other right now. Yeah. Uh, so good. You you talk about the idea of seeing art as not merely consumption, but it is it can be generative we can it, you say something along the lines of we can we can be makers mm-hmm. as we are viewers mm-hmm. um which is not a self-evident idea right mm-hmm. i mean we, we think of the makers as the makers the people who are producing mm-hmm. the art the the creative work and everybody else is a consumer mm-hmm. but i love that idea that in viewing we are making something mm-hmm. i really what are we making we we can make so many things <laughs> with what we see. Um, I'm I'm informed by the Psalms here uh, and the the model that Scripture provides to us that uh, we can be we can offer our responses to God can be can range from doxology to confession to lament to mm-hmm. history telling that there's mm-hmm. this sort of range of expressions that God makes available to us and uh, I love the the possibility that when we look at an artwork when we encounter an artwork that rather than just learning about it that we might learn from it that we might um, as as we ask good questions as we engage with it historically as we you know sort of understand it as a thing, that we also open ourselves up to the way that the artwork itself might then call us to do something, might call us mm-hmm. to offer God praise, might call us to uh, look at our own sin and to confess, might call us into a space of curiosity or lament. Um, that that rather than simply judging an artwork and saying mm-hmm. thumbs up or thumbs down, um, or being a passive consumer of advertisements or media. Um, that instead we are again working from our God-given abundance to actually recognize the ways that we are being shaped, and then to reshape in mm. uh, as, as a form of cultural production. Yeah. Um, reshape as a form of cultural production. Um, can you clarify what what you mean by that? Right, because. 
are you saying as I view, I'm receiving raw material that I can then make something else out of? Are you, are you, is that only part of what you're saying or is that not what you're saying? What's, I wouldn't say that it's, I wouldn't say that it's raw material because I think when we're looking at art, we're looking at something that an image bearer made mm-hmm. with purpose and with intention, mm-hmm. right? And so one of the things I, I talk about in the book is the sort of triangle of interpretation that we need to mm-hmm. take the object seriously. We need to take the artist seriously. And then we also need to take ourselves and the things that we bring with us to an artwork, to an object, um, sort of honestly and seriously as well. And that in that, that sort of space of negotiation, that's where the meaning making um, happens. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, I'll just use the example of a a 18th century, early 18th century floral painting by Margarita Haverman. It's one of the the first artworks that I talk about in the book. It's this really beautiful, lush, floral still life, highly, highly detailed, right? Um, And there is a way uh, that we might look at a painting like that and we might say ah this is an illustration of a 18th century dutch protestant worldview that is interested in the creation that's interested in um, a kind of moralizing vision of these flowers will fade just like you will and like here's a here's a lesson you know for you and we might say we we like this artwork because it is pretty and because uh, we as viewers align with that worldview. Okay. I think that that is in many ways like a fine start to what what, yeah. what we can do. But I'm asking us to to then take it a step further and to say, okay, Margarita Hoverman provides us with a model of looking as the as the artist provides us with a model of looking closely at the created world around her, delighting in it. And then she makes something new. She makes this painting out of it. She's not just copying actually a a floral arrangement that's in front of her, but she is actually imagining a floral arrangement. And she Mm. is she is manufacturing something new for us to delight in. And she gives it such care. She she you know, just lavishes attention, lavishes detail into this painting and then signs it proudly in the bottom corner. You know, this is made by Margarita Haverman. And I I love that as a Christian, I can take all of that knowledge about this painting Mm -hmm. and I can say, wow, I want to do that. You know, I want to look at the world around me with that same kind of attentiveness. I want to do what Haverman does. I might not be able to paint <laughs> as Haverman paints, but I want to look the way that she invites me to. Yeah. And I want to I want to praise God that the amount of care that Margarita Haverman gives to her painting, to her little created floral still life, and the delight that she obviously took in making that, that that is just a shadow of the delight that God took in making me and in making this world. And by the time I get there, doxology is inevitable. Like I have Uh to praise God for that, right? So rather than just stopping with saying, that's a nice painting, I want us to think about what's the next thing that we get to do? What's the next thing that we get to, like I said, make with our viewing? We can make praise with our viewing. Yeah. Um. You 
You talk about the idea that we need to pay attention to what we see before we make any claims about what we think. Um, I love that idea. I think that's so important. So, by the way, so many of the ideas that that are in your book, um, you're doing with with art looking uh, a lot of the, the things that um, Jessica Wilson is doing in her new book um, with reading and yes. both the triangle of the, the, the work, the, the artist and the, and the viewer and, and this idea of paying attention to what's there before we start interpreting it, mm-hmm. um, which is very much, um, the way C.S. Lewis talks about reading and experiment mm-hmm. in criticism. Yes. Um, and I think, I think you and Jessica's books came out the same day, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so this is so fun that, that there's so many overlaps. Um, that, that y'all are both working in, in these really helpful ways of, of helping people like me uh, make sense of things. Uh, so thank you, by the way. <laughs> um, but um, but I, I, I'd love to hear you talk more about this idea of why we need to see, bef- pay attention to what we see before we start talking about what we think mm-hmm. um, when it comes to receiving art. Mm-hmm. So I the question that my students hear most often from me in class is what do you see? And -hmm. they'll tell me how they feel. And I'll say, no, no, no. What do you see? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, that question is, is so important is because I believe in the creation and I believe in the incarnation. Mm -hmm. So when the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, God taking on human form, God living in time and place and culture gives dignity to our lived material experience. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, we have the sacraments, which are things that we, rituals that we perform with the stuff of this world, right? Like with Mm -hmm. bread and wine, with water. And yet they are not just bread and wine and water. They are, they are, these means of grace to us that God uses to communicate something special, something particular about our, our belovedness, about our Mm -hmm. salvation through something that is material. And so that, that tells me that there's something about who we are as humans, who we are as creatures, where we are not just propositional. We are not just logic boxes that have inputs and outputs, but that we are, we are embodied and we gain knowledge through our bodies. So all of this, right. All of, all of this, these theological commitments say that I have to pay attention to the material thing in front of me, to the object itself, and not just skip straight to what is the concept or what is the idea that it's representing? What does it mean? And when we slow down and we look more closely, um, we are we're, we're we're giving attention where it is due, and we may be surprised because when we the 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 assumptions that we may jump to by looking at something quickly are sometimes undone when we pay a little bit more attention yeah. to what's actually in front of us. Right. Mm-hmm. And so this is, uh, but we live in, we live in a culture that has formed us to not pay a lot of attention to make very quick judgments about mm-hmm. things. Um, you know, there's, there's studies about how 
little time people spend actually looking at art in yeah. museums. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then not to mention social media, which catechizes us into judging things quickly, right? Like thumbs up, thumbs down, or this mm -hmm. is a heart or no heart, swipe right, swipe left. Um, and so we need to, this is actually a very countercultural thing to then slow down and to actually pay attention to the object. Um, and sometimes when we slow down and we're looking, we might also find things that make us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think the real productive stuff starts to happen is because it's in those moments of discomfort that we can are invited into self-reflection um, and invited into, into growth and change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I go so quickly to what I think or what I feel, um, I'm shutting myself off to the possibility that what's true and good and beautiful, I don't already, you know, I don't already have access to, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, you're talking about our, our cultural, the way we're catechized in our culture. You know, one one thing we're catechized to is is the the idea that that I figure out truth that it's that truth somehow happens inside my head, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. and a, a work of art invites me to get outside my head mm -hmm. and look elsewhere for what's true and good and beautiful. Right. And, and I think it's this, this balance of, I want to pay attention to, I should never look at an object and say, I can't say that Margarita Haverman's evasive flowers is about cow farming because mm -hmm. the object <laughs> has nothing to say is not doing anything with cow farming. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, and I, I need to like, again, like C.S. Lewis says, I need to submit to that artwork to what's there. And I should submit to an understanding of what culture Margarita Haverman is working in, what we know about her, what we know about the process, what we know about the use mm -hmm. of this object in its original context. And at the same time, acknowledge that I can't re-inhabit that space, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. I cannot travel back in time and sort of experience this as Margarita Haverman's contemporaries would, because I, I myself am located mm -hmm. in, in time and yeah. place. So how do we not, this is, to me, this is part of, of loving our neighbor, even historically, mm. is acknowledging their placidness and also acknowledging some of my own limits, right? That, yeah. and those, are, those aren't bad things, but there's things that we need to acknowledge. Yeah. You know, a, a related idea Alyssa, is the idea that that we need to, to see a a work of art as an object first, and not primarily as a manifestation of an idea? Mm -hmm. I think I'm. I think that's a direct quote from you. Um, and maybe that's just another way, another way of saying what you just said. And if it is, we can move on. But but if if there's, is there anything more you might say about that? The uh, the work of art as viewing it as an object. Um, even I maybe we should, I, mean, I shouldn't say instead of a manifestation a manifestation of an idea, because it is a manifestation of an idea. But what does it mean to view it as an object? I think encountering an artwork as an object rather than just a manifestation of an idea means that you are opening your whole embodied self up to it rather than 
trying to clinically dissect it in search of some idea that lies below the surface or underneath it. I don't think that we can disentangle the idea from the thing itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we need to encounter those things together. Um, We need to be willing to walk into the San Gino Chapel and have that moment where your stomach sort of flips over as you look up at this mosaic ceiling and you see all these glittering gold tiles and four angels that are just barely touching a a circle in the center within which floats the face of Christ. And there's light coming in through one window. And every time you move, the tiles start to shimmer and glitter a little bit. If I skipped straight to thinking about what is the what is the theology that's being represented <laughs> here? Yeah. I, I'm 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 missing so much of my own humanness mm-hmm. because I am trying to separate myself. I'm trying to bifurcate myself into this mind and body when I'm both and I'm it's it's inseparable from each other. I am an enfleshed soul, right? Yeah. Um, this might be a good time for you to to help me with the distinction that you make early on between embodied vision. Maybe maybe I shouldn't say a distinction, but you talk about embodied vision, loving vision, and what was and transforming vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you just articulated what embodied vision is. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a one sentence uh, articulation of what embodied vision? Embodied vision takes matter seriously. Okay. The matter of the art object, the uh, the matter of the artist in their own time and place, and our own materiality, our own matter in our own time and mm-hmm. place. That's embodied vision. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope I'm not getting off off too far off the 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 track here, but I'm so interested in the idea that you mentioned. I never thought about before that of the five senses. Vision is the one that lets us be the most remote from the thing that we are sensing, mm-hmm. right? Nobody's ever going to – there's no danger of um, – if if we're talking about um, cooking and feasting, of us getting disembodied in mm-hmm. our discussion of mm-hmm. food, right? That's just right. always going to be embodied. Our experience of food is always going to be embodied. But it is possible to forget just how embodied it is to see a thing. Yes, because by definition, you have to you you are away from a thing when you see it. Mm-hmm. No, you aren't when you eat it. Right, right, and I'm I'm really interested in uh, an idea that's proposed by the philosopher Kelly Oliver that when we are looking at something, what's really happening is is that there's not actually distance between me and this object. That, that space that I perceive is actually full of light. And so mm-hmm. she talks about this sort of texture of light and how yeah. um, vision can be reconceptualized as a kind of touch through light as a medium. Um, and I, I love that because it, yeah. it makes me think about when I'm looking at artworks um, that I am I am touching them with my eyeballs. You know, I'm touching <laughs> the same light that is yeah. touching this uh, this Bernini sculpture is also yeah. then bouncing off of my retina, um, and that helps me pay attention 
to the rest of my body as I'm looking at an artwork? Um, am I am I pulled towards it? Do I want to move towards it, or is it something that sort of suggests no step step away, take a step back? Yeah. Um, is it something that makes my fingers kind of itch to touch it? Is it uh -huh. something that rolls my stomach over a little bit? Do I hunch my shoulders? All of these kinds of do I mimic the pose of the the person that I'm seeing? All mm. of these ways are are ways of looking that are embodied that that sort mm. of acknowledge the complex creatureliness that that we are. Yeah. So that's embodied vision. Mm -hmm. You speak of loving vision. Mm -hmm. What do you mean so, by loving vision? Loving vision. I'm thinking about um, sort of two things. One is that we are fundamentally, as Jamie Smith says, desiring creatures. We're we're not knowing creatures. We're desiring creatures. So if we understand ourselves to be driven by what we love, um, or as Esther Meek says, that we love in order to know, mm -hmm. then when we're approaching artworks, when we're approaching our visual culture, we need to start with uh, a loving orientation towards God and towards our neighbor. So rather than thinking, I'm out here um, trying to uh, dismiss artworks, or I'm trying to deconstruct them, or to um, to critique, crit criticize them, or to distance myself from them. There's something fundamentally different about approaching all of that from the position of love, of curiosity, mm -hmm. um, of a sort of seeking out of something that might um, that might shape us. And then love also means that we. Um, that we are perhaps more willing to enter into spaces that are uncomfortable because that's what love requires us to do. Yeah. So if I want to love my neighbor and I am looking at an artwork by the African-American artist, Carrie Mae Weems, and it's making me uncomfortable. I do not like the history that she is telling. It makes me sad loving vision says I need to step in to that space of discomfort mm -hmm. rather than removing myself from it. Yeah. Um, the loving vision is, a, is an orientation. It's a motivation for why we look in the first place. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Um, and then the transforming vision. Tell me about that. And then, yeah. So transforming vision, which is my favorite <laughs> transforming <laughs> vision uh, means that I I'm inviting us to to look, to engage with art and visual culture, open to the possibility that we might be changed in the process. That this is not simply about um, an object that is outside of us that we can um, sort of judge and be done with, but that if we are looking in a way that is embodied, if we're looking in a way that's loving, that we then might also be transformed. Yeah. Um, and that we might be, we might learn something. We might be cracked open in a mm -hmm. way to something that um, that brings us closer to the heart of God. Mm. Yeah, so much of our media and cultural experience is sort of this choose your own adventure novel where I can watch the news station that tells me that confirms what I want to hear and I or when I come to you know, you're you're in higher education you know mm -hmm. I, I come to a um a, a text 
to be read and, and I ignore the parts that or, or I let it roll off me, the parts that I don't already agree with or I or I, I you know, I don't in any way submit to the possibility that, that this text might change me. Right. Um, or even philosophy, you know, the the uh, the philosophy used to be the you know, people used to ex- I think people used to expect to study philosophy as a way of learning how to see the world. And now it's just mm-hmm. sort of let's study the way people used to see the world. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> um, and uh, and so that willingness to be transformed by what we see and what we witness um, is really uh, that's a really helpful thing to, to bear in mind. Um, and so that's one of the things I appreciate about about your book is this this idea that uh, we need to expect to be transformed mm-hmm. by the things that we look at. Right. And, you know, as, as Christian viewers who know our own brokenness, mm-hmm. we should, we should never be surprised that there's something that might need to be fixed. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, another way to sort of think about this is that if we are looking at art, with this understanding of that arc of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that's what that knowledge, that certainty is what gives us the capacity to love. That's what gives mm-hmm. us the capacity to be openness, open to transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, the there is nothing that we need to be afraid of when mm-hmm. we are looking at art if we know that how secure we are in the love of Christ and in the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, that does bring up a question for me, though. Mm -hmm. Earlier in our conversation, we talked about locating that which is good and true and honorable and Mm -hmm. the the parameters from Philippians 4.8. How do we square that? I mean, in in one sense, that that seems... one could interpret that as as being of, of us having an expectation that we can dig around there in whatever we we look and find what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we're back to the choose your own adventure thing, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm looking for mm-hmm. truth, you know, that which is true and good and 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 uplifting or or whatever according to my lights of what is true and good and and uh, of moral excellence and, and praiseworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a way to get that wrong, right? Oh, sure. When I when I teach my my class on women art and culture, I tell my students, I know you have a lot of reading. I'm assigning you a lot of reading. <laughs> but what I need you to do this semester is also be reading through the New Testament and paying attention to how Jesus loves women. And the mm-hmm. reason I want you to do that, the reason is because I want you to have Jesus so in front of you that you are able to recognize where he is and where he isn't mm-hmm. rather than, and you need to you the only way that you're going to know that is through the word of God, right? We still mm-hmm. need special revelation. Mm-hmm. What we can do though, I'm, I'm thinking now about a, an engraving by Paul Revere of the Boston massacre that I talk about in a, in a mm-hmm. chapter on history in this book and how that engraving, which is fairly well known. It has done a lot to shape some of our cultural imagination of the war for independence. Mm -hmm. Um, The image sets up a very clear us versus them, Mm -hmm. good guys versus bad guys kind of dichotomy. 
And there is a way that we could look at Paul Revere's engraving and say, well, as a piece of history, this is trash because it is not accurate, right? It is not accurately telling us the events that happened um, in the Boston Massacre. But we can also look at that and say, oh, I see how the same formula of distancing, um, I see how the same formula of creating an us versus them, good guys versus bad guys continues to play out today. And I need to be transformed by that. I need to be made aware of that so that I am um, more discerning in the other things that I look at. So in that instance, right, we're not really looking for what is the goodness in Paul Revere's engraving so much as the what is the what's the warning, what's the lesson there for us mm -hmm. to learn that mm -hmm. then can transform us if we are humble enough to be able to see how it still relates to our world today. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. All right. We're we're about to run out of time. So I need to I need to give you a chance to uh, earlier, earlier in our conversation, you said that that your husband says that you study the art that we don't like. Yes. So I, I want to give you uh, a minute here, a few minutes, if you want a few minutes, uh, to make a case for all this art that that a lot of people don't like. Um, you know, you you make some connections between abstract art and transcendence. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Well, maybe even more than abstract art. I think what people don't like is the, the the thing in the contemporary section of the museum that is um, fruit peels, old fruit peels that have been stitched back together. And okay. then the whole thing is thrown on the ground and you look at it and you're like, that's not art. That's trash. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. That is really the art that I want to write about because it's mm -hmm. the art that I don't initially like either. I don't, particularly enjoy looking at shriveled black banana peels that have been stitched with blue thread and kind of misshapen baseballs of leathery orange peels that have been sutured back together. I don't enjoy looking at that. But when I use my redeeming vision, when I look in a way that is embodied, when I look in a way that is loving, when I look in a way that's open to transformation, I find myself paying attention to those fractures and to the care that has been given to, to stitching those sad, desiccated <laughs> root skins back up. And I think, wow, what, what is this artist? What's this artist thinking? What's this artist doing? I, she's paying attention to this fracture. I should too. Mm. And I'm, this work that I'm thinking of, it, right now is the work um, Strange Fruit by Zoe Leonard that she makes at the height of the HIV AIDS crisis. And she's she's taking things that would be discarded and is giving them this kind of care and attention and asking us, will we do the same? And I find that so, the reason that I want to look at that is because I find it so convicting about what I deem worthy of my attention. Mm -hmm who I deem worthy of my attention. And I maybe need to be shaken up by a sad, dark banana peel on the ground that has been lovingly stitched back together to make me recognize the ways that I might not want to invest in things that don't seem worth it to me. 
Uh But that is maybe exactly who God calls me to invest in. That's why I think that's why I look at contemporary art. It just, it just punches me in the gut and makes me need Jesus more. Mm. Yeah. Great. Um, well, will you tell me last question? Um, who are the writers who make you want to write? Or if you prefer, talk to me about the ways that art makes you want to go write stuff. The writer who makes me want to write is Eleanor Hartney. She is a art historian and journalist and one of the first art writers that I read that made me that made me feel something in my body when I was reading her descriptions of artworks. And mm-hmm. I, I love her writing and I love how accessible her writing is because okay. I always want my writing to be accessible to other people. The art that makes me want to write is the art that makes me uncomfortable, <laughs> that gets uh-huh. inside of me and that I can't quite get rid of mm-hmm. until I've sort of sat down, given it attention and tried to work through what's there mm-hmm. that is asking me to to perk up to, it's asking me to to give it attentiveness um so that's that's the art that gets me wanting to write yeah um well qu- quick follow-up question about that does that mean art that's less accessible than than some of the art that some of the rest of us easily like or is it is that what you're saying or are you saying something else? What makes you what perks you up about art? Sometimes the art that makes me the most uncomfortable is actually art from medieval churches that feels so mysterious and distant even though it comes from my own faith tradition. Uh. It's there's art that feels strange because it's from another time and place, not just art that sort of I don't find aesthetically pleasing, but art that feels other to me. Yeah, and yeah. and so I, I, I think fundamentally the art that makes me want to write is the art that announces itself as being somehow different from what I expect mm-hmm. and invites me into a dialogue with it, invites me into deeper attentiveness and transformation. And sometimes those things are really, really formally beautiful, like the San Zeno Chapel, um, but still mysterious and other to me in, in some way. Mm, I love it. Well, Dr. Alyssa Yukiko White wrote, uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, this has been really fun to talk to you about, about this book, which um, I find very helpful. So thank you for the book and thank you for this conversation. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. 